Warning! This episode of The Secret Cinema contains discussions of disturbing and adult content. So, heads up! You were amazing! Well done! That was, that was just wonderful! Ma Madam Speaker, you must call for a vote! Very well, we'll vote. But remember, federally funded care is a slippery slope leading to higher taxes and lousy service. Well, you just heard them. Cinephilia is a pre-existing condition. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and today the two of us are discussing Stephen Green's 2015 screwball political comedy, Accidental Love. Now, during the episode, I make a vague reference to how, watching this film in 2017, it's very believable to see the Speaker of the House portrayed as a villain. Regardless of what you think of Newt Gingrich or Paul Ryan, it's worth remembering that former Republican Congressman Dennis Hastert, who served as the Speaker of the House from 1999 to early 2007, is a serial child molester, and as of this recording, is still serving time in prison. So yeah, the Speaker of the House isn't exactly a role beyond reproach. Anywho, here's Carrie with the plot summary. When Alice gets hit in the head with a nail gun as her cop boyfriend is about to propose, she finds out that medical procedures are pretty expensive without health insurance. With a nail in her head and a song in her heart, she takes her plight to Washington, D.C. Enter Representative Howard Birdwell, who just so happens to need a local citizen to help him sell the idea of a military moon base to the public. Howard and Alice advance their needs in Congress, while also advancing their relationship. But when their plans clash with the Speaker of the House's moon base, will Howard and Alice's romance and Bill survive, or will it be dead on arrival? The name Stephen Green is actually a pseudonym for Oscar-nominated writer and director David O. Russell, who directed a majority of this film. Recently, David O. Russell has been making ensemble dramas, but both Carrie and I see Accidental Love as being more in line with Russell's underappreciated screwball comedies. Our first clip, in which Alice, played by Jessica Biel, and her fiancé Scott, played by James Marsden, speak with two doctors played by Bill Hader and Darlene Hunt about the nail in Alice's head, is largely an exposition dump, but the tone and pace of the conversation should give you an idea of the film's overall comedic feel. Here's that clip. How can it be $150,000 to pull a nail out? It's brain surgery. It's stuck in the cephanoid bone that's behind the nose. It's deep. It's not good. Maybe we can get married and then I can be on Scott's plan. <laughs> okay, then the nail would be a pre-existing condition and the insurer won't pay. Well, what if we just leave it in there? I, you know, I, I think, I feel like I've seen this on the internet. You know, some rocker dude has nails in his head and he's fine. I could be fine. It depends on where it is, and yours is in a super unlucky place. Okay, how unlucky are we talking, Doc? I deal with odds on a daily basis. Okay, that's my job. What are the odds Alice being completely messed up? She could lose mouth motor control, have slurred speech, have a lifetime of heavy drooling. 
not a fun wife. Well, our love is stronger than that, right, Scotty? 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 Let's just see what the doctors have to say. Another option, if the nail shifts within the lobe, uh, then she's likely to lose all kinds of inhibitions. Oh, that's really good, right? Yeah, that could be good. Frankly, that's uh, kind of a pain in the ass. Might be good for sex. <laughs> oh, maybe I can finally have an orgasm. No. Okay, honey, so private. I already told you that 50 to 60% of women don't have orgasms from intercourse. What about you starting gentle like I asked and then taking it at the angle that I really like? Anyway, so... Uh, the nail in this lobe um, could actually cause her fits of panic, um, unpredictable moments of wrath, rage, anger. Ah, yeah, I read that same article. And she could start speaking uh, fragments of a foreign language that maybe she was exposed to as a child. It's crazy, but it happens. I've seen it once before. Oh, my God. Remember Portuguese Amena, my babysitter? I wanted her to be in, in the bridesmaid. Um, yeah, yeah, Amena. Yeah, the babysitter. What are you uh, doing? It needs to be resized, right? Wait, wait, wait. Are we still engaged? Uh, let's just... We are, right? Let's focus on fixing your head right now. Take it from there, okay? This will give you good luck for now. Did you just exchange her engagement ring for a chicken foot? Okay, first of all, it's a hawk talon. It's very meaningful to me. Alice knows that. It's brought me great luck over the years. 90% of the time. We really enjoyed James Marsden's against type casting as an asshole-ish, statistics-obsessed police officer. Here's another clip of him, this time arguing with his new girlfriend Brenda after he sees Alice on the news. Here's that clip. Wow. What's going on? Why are you watching this? Alice is on TV. What? We were gonna watch Terminator. Brenda, can you move? I made popcorn. I, I slept over. Brenda, I told you that there's a 55-45% chance that I couldn't get over Alice. Now that's going to 70-30. She's amazing. Amazing? She has a damaged head. Okay, 65-35. But I might still be in love with her. Your numbers are garbage to me. Call me though, because I don't know how this is going to turn out. Despite most of the plot revolving around healthcare and the government, Accidental Love largely chooses to approach political satire in ways both broad and bizarre. Our final clip, a political attack ad conceived by the Speaker of the House to tear down a viral video created by the Girl Squaws of America, illustrates the strange way in which the film chooses to satirize politics without actually taking a tough or controversial stand. Here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for a discussion of accidental love. Some people want us to raise taxes to pay for socialist medicine. Maybe these people are bad news because they're lesbians. Marsha Weber is the number two leader of the movement behind Alice Echel, raised in a family lesbian cult led by this woman, committed to spreading lesbianism door to door via the Girl Squaws of America. Marsha Weber has been an influence for many years. Stop the gay poison. Tell your representatives you are against the catastrophic care bill. Secret Santa. 
welcome back to a brand new episode of The Secret Cinema, and it's a brand new episode with a brand not-so-new thing, <laughs> Carrie and I, doing an episode Just the Two of Us. Just the Two of Us. Moving on up. Wrong musician, <laughs> but great music. 70s soul, and... There's not really a lot of soul in the movie we're talking about today, but there's... I mean, speak for yourself, Paolo. It's a lot of grooving. I, there was a lot of grooving. I had no good segue for this, but the point is, <laughs> we watched uh, Stephen Green's 2015 <laughs> film, Accidental Love, and now we're talking about it. And, uh, but not by accident. Not by accident. Uh, it's very purposeful that we're talking about it. And by very purposeful, I mean... I said, Carrie, we got to do an episode, just the two of us. What movie do you want to do? And I and, said... And she gave me two choices, and this is the one that I've seen all of. <laughs> so we're doing this one. <laughs> and honestly, I... Uh, spoiler alert, this movie is actually directed by Academy Award-nominated director David O. Russell. And I genuinely like David O. Russell. I love two of his movies. I Heard Huckabees is obviously one of the greatest movies ever. Uh, I would also yeah. consider very close to, uh, almost as good as I Heard Huckabees, Flirting with Disaster. Agreed. Um, and then he's kind of, like, there's a, lot, there's, a, yeah, there's a lot to like about, I wouldn't say any of his movies are bad, but... The, no. the rest of his, his career is, is, is more complicated. Point is, I bring up those two movies because this is very much in the spirit of those movies. Yes. More screwball, comedic, lighthearted. If it, if it touches on big, important issues, it does it very lightheartedly. And, uh, it doesn't take itself too seriously. And so I, well, and so broadly, the idea of it really appealed to me. But then there's all this drama that we will definitely get into later about the making of this movie, hence Stephen Green directing it. And so we, I really wanted to see it because it sounded like an interesting disaster from a filmmaker I liked. I like those types of movies. That's a usually pretty rewarding experience. Yeah, it's uh, always nice to know that, that good directors can have uh, bad streaks. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, every artist has a tough period. I was interested to see this movie and it was basically described as a total train wreck, an absolute piece of garbage, a failure. And basically with that sort of description, not to mention that I had seen American Hustle before this, this actually seemed really good. <laughs> and uh, I obviously see that it's not a perfect movie. Again, we will get into many of the things that are wrong with it, but overall, the point of this movie is to be a lighthearted comedy about an admittedly serious and very important subject. That's but very timely right now. Right now. And it was timely when the movie was, was created, filmed, too. yeah. And I don't know when the novel that it was based off was written, but it's presumably always been timely because the <laughs> issue is healthcare that we're talking about. But if you don't look at it as a movie about healthcare and look at it as just, like, the type of mindless, uh, high-energy, escapist... It's weird, because it is kind of... I would think of it as kind of escapist while being totally it focused has, on a political issue. It has, like you said, it has those screwball elements, so you're able to really separate yourself from well, it. Well, yeah, what do you think about it? 
Yeah, well, my opinion of the movie has shifted somewhat since the first time we saw it. The first time I saw it, I went in knowing that it was a David O. Russell vehicle, but that he was somehow, he somehow became uninvolved with it. I didn't really know the full backstory. And as Paolo said, I also love I Heart Huckabees. I have seen that movie Oh, God. Probably, like, a hundred um, yeah. times. <laughs> Anytime I'm having a bad day, I'm like, well, how am I not myself? <laughs> I still remember the first time I saw that movie, I was watching it because it was on TV while I was waiting to find out if there was a snow you day. You watched a TV edit of it? Hold oh. on. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but I was watching a TV, I was watching a TV edit of I Heard Alchemy's. <laughs> probably not. It was probably on a movie channel. Okay. But I was, the point is, I was watching it while I was waiting to find out if there was going to be a snow day in school. I was that young where their snow days were in play. And when I found out that we did have a snow day, I continued to watch I Heard Huckabee <laughs> instead of doing it. So it's, it's, yeah, it's always been a movie that I have loved, that you have loved. Yeah, and I, uh, so my opinion for, the reason my opinion for this movie has shifted is the first time watching it, it was so incredibly engrossing and fascinating because it is very clearly a movie that David O. Russell made, but it's not his movie anymore. Yeah. And so just knowing that and watching it, you, you see the elements of things that he regularly does, like has ensemble casts, has, you know, screwball elements, has really incredible witty one-off dialogue has little stunts that go off here and there but at the same time it has the the oh shit we lost our creative director we need to throw in some things here and there and so it was almost like watching a puzzle come together and see where you could see where the missing pieces were that David O. Russell didn't get to or like you know, they got thrown out when you donated the puzzle to the Salvation Army. Sorry, I went with that uh, analogy. But anyway, <laughs> um, the second time watching it, because I knew what was going to happen and because I kind of remembered what elements stood out a lot, I could see them more this time, like the glaring problems with the movie. And I still really enjoyed the movie, but I wouldn't say that I liked it as much as the first time I saw it. But you brought up American Hustle, and I will say that I still like this movie more than American yeah. Hustle. <laughs> yeah, I would say, like, for his full career, and I've seen every one of his movies, and I would say this is his second worst, and American Hustle is his worst. <laughs> Which is so weird, because American Hustle is the one that was, like, his, his like, critical breakout. Well, and American Hustle is extremely professionally made, whereas this is, like, not. <laughs> this, like, yeah. one of the problems are, are, like, the clear lack of care put into certain things that should have been done very well at American Hustle. They spent a ton of money on the production design and make the sure costumes. the shots the, the shots are like beautifully lit and the camera moves so elegantly through and it's like just like the content is so familiar and bland and unengaging because you've seen it before. You get where it's going. It's a 70s pastiche and it's a so you know it's all the same 70s shit you've seen all the so it might be fine it might be a well-made movie but it's so it's too late so who cares and accidental love because it is 
a poorly made movie. And it is clearly a movie stitched together. It's a, a Frankenstein movie. But because what it inherently is and is trying to be is at least unique enough to kind of not it, it can't be killed by yeah. uh, just the, the Hollywood process and the mangling of it and that is inherently interesting to me and like I was yeah. thinking about this a lot during the movie and whether or not the movie fails or succeeds it still doesn't have a conventional arc to it it doesn't have yeah. the conventional like expectations of like how these characters are going to interact with each other and what people's through lines are. And like some, there are some characters who we, we, I will have to get in the plot in a second, but there are some characters who are very clearly like introduced as one-off jokes and are developed a little bit more than you'd expect. And are given room to like bounce off of other elements instead of just being the one-off joke that you'd expect in yeah. some sort of bullshit. Like a like Hollywood a Coen movie. Brothers movie. Almost. Yeah. Like there's there's that or the little... secondary character like like the doctors in the hospital. Yeah. They are developed enough where you're like, oh, I kind of get who this person is, but then you never see them again in the movie. Yeah. So yeah, and that's the other thing too is even though the second time watching this movie, I didn't like it as as much as the first time. Uh, the the thing that's so great about watching this movie is you can see every once in a while that like glimmer of when this would have been an absolute like masterpiece. I don't know. I was thinking about that too because I kept trying to think. About... I feel like it could have been a great movie, and because of all the well the problems that we'll get into, it wasn't. Well, I guess we should get into it before I really argue that point further. So, but the very if we're going to get into the plot, we kind of have to immediately sidebar on the opening stretch of the movie. So, really quickly to basically set it up, the main character is Alice. She's played by Jessica Biel. She is uh, one of those women who is a waitress. She basically works at like a Sonic. Yeah, it's like a, a Johnny Rockets like throwback diner, but it's specifically one of those ones where the cars park outside and a girl roller skates up to you and takes your order, which this movie was made in the mid-2000s, so it's like one of those things that I couldn't think of a period of time that that wouldn't be like excessively anachronistic for the main character <laughs> to be working, but it's it's that kind of movie. I'm going to argue this a lot, that some of these things that a lot of people criticize it for kind of fit in with the tone the movie's going for, and yeah. this is definitely one of those things. But anyway, she works at this diner, and her boyfriend is this cop, uh, Scott Beardsley, played by James Marston. Oh, he has a last name. Yeah, he, I saw it on his name tag. Oh. Um, <laughs> And he he proposes. Well, he he basically he's he, he wants to propose to Alice, and so he takes her to this restaurant, the Fancy Gondola. This is set in Indiana, so I don't know to what degree that's a joke about Indiana being shitty, but <laughs> I took it that way. And he gets they they are having dinner at the special, the best table at the Fancy Gondola, which is called the Gondola Table, presumably because it is underneath a gondola. That's what it seemed like. Yeah, and that's where we got a sidebar is this scene. The reason I say I believe it's a gondola is because this scene, which is the inciting the, incident for the entire yeah, movie, the is so terribly shot yeah. that you can't help but assume that David O. Russell couldn't have shot this scene. Well, he didn't. He didn't, okay. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing is, 
Um, oh, well, and uh, before we get into that, we can kind of describe the rest of the plot, which is, uh, so Jessica Beale and, or I'm sorry, Alice and Scott, Scott's about to propose to Alice, right as he's proposing, this guy is fixing the hanging gondola above their table. With a nail gun. With a nail gun, and he's, he's like, I don't mind if you eat while I work, and... He's using the nail gun, he falls off the ladder onto Alice and shoots a nail into her head. And we should also mention too that this, like, he's using the nail gun through most of the scene, but the process, the sh- like, him falling on Alice to the end of the scene, essentially the end of the fancy gondola, we don't see any more of it, is like, I want to say it's like two seconds. <laughs> like, it's really, it's an obscenely short amount of time yeah. for the event that sets in motion it the is, rest of the plot. It is by far the worst scene in the movie, and it's because David O. Russell didn't film it. Yeah. Um, and and so, anyway, she ends up at the hospital. There. But, look, before, oh, I want to talk about that a little bit more, just because we got to go on. All like, right, fair it's, enough. It's, yeah, yeah. We, can, we can get into it. Because, so, okay, it's not just that, like, okay, I, I said, like, the actual moment where he, the guy has the nail gun, falls off the ladder, and it shows, it hit her in the head and her fall down. It's, like, this blurry, fast, rapid shot, like, like nothing. But it's also happening in... A di- it's like, like pitch dark. It's like pitch black. And this is a fancy restaurant, but there is a difference. Like, if you've ever watched a David Fincher film, you know there's a way to you light. You can have candlelight you can and have still see what's going a on. A dark, lit room. Yeah. Like, a room that has detail and is dark. Like, that is, the his David Fincher's entire career is that shot. Yeah. <laughs> for every, every scene. This but movie. tinted blue. This movie, it's like. They lost David O. Russell and were not legally allowed to hire a director <laughs> to film the scene. I mean, kind of. What happened? What's the deal? All right, so we'll get into the backstory. Okay. David O. Russell, he gets hired to, to shoot this movie, right? He co-wrote the screenplay with um, Al Gore's daughter. Kristen Gore. Kristen Gore, who, she's got that going. She's got a good sense of humor. They co-write this screenplay they get a budget of $26 million in 2008, key 2008. Uh, they start filming, and the financial crisis happens. Boom. Boom. Basically, the studio that was funding the project didn't have any money for them. <laughs> and so David O. Russell, he, you know, he, like, filmed what he could, but he knew, he knew that the crux of the movie is that nail scene. So he wait. He that was gonna be the last scene that they filmed. But before they got to that, a couple things happened, and we should preface by saying that David O. Russell, uh, he's kind of a crazy guy. He, uh, the word that Lily Tomlin used was uh, mercurial. Mercurial, yeah. She said he's very raw and emotional. and, and <laughs> She would know. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, in case you don't remember, uh, there were, it's still on YouTube, I think, um, but you can watch a video of David O. Russell calling Lily Tomlin the C word. If you're interested, I don't know why you'd be interested in that, but it happened and now it's on YouTube, just like, you know, people falling off their skateboards. Um, but... Anyway, he is kind of known for being very temperamental. There's even a story of during Three Kings, 
with uh, George Clooney, I guess jo David O. Russell was calling, you know, the production staff like assholes or, you know, being really demeaning to him. And George Clooney was like, yo, dude, you can't do that, especially because they don't have any power to fight back. And they got into like a physical altercation where George Clooney ended up, I think, like grabbing David O. Russell by the throat. <laughs> and so, and, and George Clooney's gone on to say like, Life's too short. I'll never work with David O. Russell again. <laughs> so, he's gotten a, a reputation of being kind of hard to work with. And so, this movie, one of the first things that happened on the movie is, uh, you know how, you know the James Brolin role? Yeah. Do you know who originally was the... By the way, James Brolin plays the Speaker of the House. Yes. Uh, do you know who originally was going to be the James Brolin role? Robert De Niro. Oh man, you're that's a good guess because now Robert De Niro and David O. Russell are like Yeah. They, they're like, best buds, I guess. No, uh James Kahn. Yeah, that's that's a very James Kahn role. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but James Kahn quit. He quit production after a month. And that role in the movie, the the James Kahn uh James Brolin uh, yeah. role is really short. At least, yeah, on screen, I don't know if they, like, how much they chopped up the movie, but on screen, that character has maybe five minutes of screen time. Yeah, because he dies. Spoiler alert. Dies in the scene he is introduced. <laughs> yeah. And uh, allegedly, this is what I read while doing research, but allegedly, James Caan and David O. Russell got in an argument about, did you hear about no, this? No, but I, I believe what you're saying. <laughs> they, right? they got in an argument about whether someone could cough and choke at the same time. James Kahn believed that if you were choking, you wouldn't be able to, like, make noise because you're choking. And so he wanted to shoot the scene like that. Whereas David O. Russell was like, well, we'll do a shot of both. But he was like, but I'm just going to tell you right now, we're probably going to keep the coughing scene. And and James kind of, apparently they, the argument got so heated that he, he quit. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine being like so dedicated to your craft that the question of choking versus coughing would cause you to be like, forget it! And keep in mind, forget James, it! James Conn did not quit Misery. Uh, <laughs> and he did not quit Bottle Rocket and all sorts of movie experiences that surely had to have some acting challenges for him. And He uh, left the gun and took the cannoli. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I just thought that was so interesting that James Conn was like, well, you know what? I have integrity, and I need to be choking in this choking death scene. But anyway, so that happened a month into shooting, and then over the course of shooting, they got shut down 14 times. 14 different times they stopped production entirely because of either, like, issues with the staff or with funding. I mean, it was mostly funding, like... The unions ended up getting involved because actors weren't getting paid. They were just not receiving payment and showing up at work and being like, oh, when's that money going to come in? <laughs> and, you know, David O. Russell's like, I don't know, let me ask the backers. And doing research on the backers, I learned so much about how Hollywood works. <laughs> and, like, production companies. But basically, it was originally financed by this company called Capital Films, 
which is which was run at the time by David Bergstein and Ron Tudor. Okay, so Bergstein and Tudor in 2003, before this movie, they loaned a shit ton of money to this production company called Franchise Pictures, and then that company went bankrupt. So they became the owner of all the movies that that production company had made, which was like 24 movies. Then in 2006, they acquired Capital Films, which funded Accidental Love, which... By the way, originally... It was called Nailed, right? Oh, such a better title. So much better, yeah. Such a better title. I mean, it's a double entendre, also, and it's literal! And it makes sense. Like, Accidental Love is, like, the least accurate summary of the things that happen. It does technically define certain parts of the plot, but that's, I don't know, that's like calling Titanic Accidental Love. It's, like, <laughs> as integral to the plot. yeah. Well, and we even talked about how in the last episode with Fear, okay, Fear is maybe the most vague title that you could have for a movie, but it still works because it's it's indicating what happens in the movie. Yeah. Accidental Love is not really what happens in this movie. Not to mention Nailed is such a shameless pun that it really preps your mind for the type of movie this yeah, is. Yeah, it's going to be a screwball comedy. And yeah. yeah, there's a lot to this where it's like, especially if this had come out right after I Heard Huckabees versus uh, it coming out after The Fighter and uh, Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle, it, the context is so wrong. That yeah. most people saw this movie in just like like and with the like, wrong oh, side of expectations, blah, blah. and granted, is still like a total freak of uh, nature in terms of the rest of his movies. But it it I don't know I, I feel like people really expect it to be something that it is clearly not interested. in. Yeah, being. I think I think that's part of why. Uh, like I said earlier, this movie is so fascinating to watch is because. If you if you just like went into this movie and didn't know anything about David O. Russell, like what would be your takeaway? <laughs> he loves uh, diagonal shots. <laughs> I feel like you would hate this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you didn't, I that's I, a full like confession. The context is that if you if you don't have this context that we have, or at least you don't approach it with the cinephile love of like. Well, a movie can be bad, but I'm willing to see through the badness to see what it does right. Like, I'll call this uh, the Tarantino disease, <laughs> where uh, you can find joy in literally anything done well, regardless of how bad the context may be. And for me, this type of thing, like, we've covered movies like this on the podcast before, where we're like, yeah, it's a bad movie. Yeah, Frequency is a bad movie, but we love it. And, and Actually, yeah. and you know what it reminded me of is Stuart Saves His Family. Like, I went into Stuart Saves His Family not knowing that that was an SNL movie. Yeah. <laughs> and it, like, totally changed the context for me, whereas, like, you, or you and Will, you... Uh, you knew about the SNL skit and you didn't like it as much. Yeah. And so I wonder if it would be the reverse with with Accidental Love where someone goes into it and they're like, oh, I hate this. But because we have this shared appreciation for David O. Russell that we're like, I'll, I'll give this movie a, a pass. Like, it's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, I think we're way more willing to give it a shot and we can see more things to like it. And honestly, because I like Kristen... Well, I like Kristen Gore in the extent that... I like Futurama. Yeah, Futurama's I'm aware great. that she 
She, I looked her up on IMDb, and she's only credited with writing one episode, but she's credited as a story writer, or story editor on many more. Yeah. But the episode she wrote is Leela's Homeworld, which is the one where Leela finds out where her, what her parents are. Like, yeah, like the, that's the a the really good episode. It's a really good, it's a really emotional episode. Yeah. It's, an, any, it's, it, like, it's one of those amazing Futurama episodes that in the right mood, if you're drunk enough, you probably cry during. Like, <laughs> it's one of those. And so it's like, I really... I'm, like, willing to give this movie the benefit of the doubt. And honestly, thinking about her as a Futurama writer while watching this makes a lot of sense. Makes It yeah. it makes way more sense if you think it's of it. It's got all the kooky jokes. And it, it has that sort of... It's, it's like a screwball movie with TV jokes is the yeah. best way to describe it. And that's kind of the thing that makes it not a good movie. Is yeah. that it doesn't feel like they really tried to put the A material in there. It's really mm-hmm. funny, and there's bits we'll get into, but it feels, uh, sh- at times, it feels like a um, strong to all right episode of television at best. It never fully hits cinematic yeah. at any given point. Yeah, I agree entirely. And it's weird, this movie had so many things going for, for it. Like, one of the things we haven't even talked about is the cast. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Jessica Biel is Alice. We talked about how her, the, her cop fake fiancé, who ends up breaking up with her as soon as she gets the nail in the head, yeah. is James Marsden. Yeah, James Marsden playing kind of a dick. Like, a, yeah. a, a funny dick. Like I that, really like he's him. Really good, he's playing against type. Like, usually, yeah. I mean, James Marsden is very likable, very charismatic, and you never see him play, like, a guy who is, like, amusingly... Uh, an asshole. An asshole, not necessarily unlikable, but also blatantly an asshole. <laughs> yeah. In like a very weird way. In a way where he's like, I don't give a shit if you think I'm an asshole. Reason it's like and he's obsessed with statistics. Man, and you know what I just realized is he continues in the 30 Rock thread because yeah. Tracy uh Morgan is in this. Yeah, actually, I was at a few points in this movie I I real I was like, this feels like like a 30 Rock episode mixed with a Futurama episode. Ah. Like, at least in terms of like the jokes. I wrote and down. The absurdity. Like, I wrote down when, uh, like, this, I thought this was like a very, uh, I don't know which one of these it's more, but I wrote down uh, after she gets the nail on her head, Alice goes to the doctor's office and she, her parents show up and they're, they say, like, we'll do anything. And they're like, and she says, can you pay for my health, my health care? My and, surgery? And they're like, no, we can't pay because it's going to be $150,000 to remove the nail. Which, I, 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 when I heard that in the movie, I was like, man, that is, like, probably exactly what it would cost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's yeah. brain surgery. Yeah. But, um... They, she says, like, well, Mom, Dad, don't I, I aren't I still on your health care? And they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah. well, when you were 22, you had the choice of continuing health care or letting your dad get you a credit card that we would pay $500 of. And Jessica Biel is, like, weeping in the hospital, and she says, at the time, I thought the credit card sounded more fun, <laughs> but now I think the insurance sounds more fun. <laughs> like, lines like that that are, like, funny, but it's, like, that is, like, a joke that would be in Futurama or 30 Rock yeah, or definitely. like a lot of the TV that I really like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that kind of joke. Yeah, and then um, there were two other writers that were credited on IMDb for this movie and they're like a writing team but one of them is Shel Silverstein's son. Weird. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah. They both created together, they created Drawn Together. Oh, 
God, that show fucking blows. Oh, is it? I have never <laughs> it's seen awful. it. It's awful. Okay. It's really bad. Well, they also worked on some other shows together. But, okay, I want to get back to the financial backers because we just talked about things that this movie has going for it. And, like, one of the things that should have been going for it were these two investors. Like, like I said, they had acquired Capital Films. Also, at the same time in 2006, they acquired Think Film. The production company. Oh yeah. Which Think Film? I'm I'm sure you've seen a movie that has that uh, logo in front of it. It's Think has the uh, the exclamation point in it instead yeah. of an I. But I wrote down just some of the movies that they did. They did Encounters at the End of the World, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, The Ten, The oh, TV yeah. Set, oh, I Candy, love set. Half Nelson, Short Bus, yep. Primer. Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys, like they're a really yeah. huge indie player, and so when these two guys bought uh, or acquired uh, Capital Films and Think Film, they became huge players in the indie field, and that's why they backed a David O. Russell movie. They were like, "Oh, well, he's an indie film director. We are indie film people. Yeah, like of course we'll give you money for a movie, but." Like I said, in 2008, they had, oh my god, I wrote it down, let me find it. They had 14 creditors come after them to, uh, you know, get their money back. Sorry, I lost my place. But the both of them ended up being in the production company business again, even though they went bankrupt, like, <laughs> multiple times. Actually, uh, Ronald Tudor, one of, the, one of the guys, he is the CEO of the largest general contractor business in the United States. Man. They had a reported income in 2013 of $4.2 billion. Yeah, so you just fail upward. Yeah, Yeah, like, who cares if you lose, you know, like a couple hundred million on film production when you're making $4.2 billion? <laughs> yeah, you pay the loss out of pocket. Jeez. Yeah, right. Jesus Christ. All right, so Paulo, I think in order to become filmmakers, we should have like a side hustle. So maybe yep. we should get into construction or real estate. That seems like a viable market. Yes. Maybe not for long, but no, I think Bitcoin is where it's at. Actually, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. No, no. We're not doing Bitcoin. I mean, maybe I will. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> you will get ripped off. <laughs> but okay. Just to, like, finish up the disaster that was making this movie. So, in 2008, production stopped. Um, the other production company that had the, the film negatives for this movie, they were all, uh, with David O. Russell in postponing the nail gun scene to shoot because... They knew that they wouldn't be able to release the film without that scene. Yeah. And so they kept the film negatives to prevent an unpolished release of the movie. A, because a, they, mag a magnificent Amberson situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it basically like, oh, well, we can just cut this. It's kind of like old dogs. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> Where they took like a an R-rated adult movie and made it a PG. We'll just CGI a baby's face. Boom, we got an ending. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, but so um, because they withheld the film negatives, the union pulled support, and basically the scene was left unshot, and you know everybody like walked off the movie. 
So, be, uh, after this all happened, the two guys, Tudor and Bergstein, they were like, oh shit, we're about to go into foreclosure. We better find an editor. So they hired an editor in 2010, and they asked... Uh, David O. Russell to return and he was like fuck no he basically said no because they were gonna have the salaries of the other production company and so he was like no I'm not gonna return if you're gonna cut everyone's salary in half yeah <laughs> and so in July 2010 so two years after they started filming David O. Russell officially walked away from the movie so it was like two years in production or, I guess, stalled production. Yeah. Um, so they, like, tried to scrape together an edit. The film was purchased in 2014 by another production company called Millennium Entertainment, and which is now Alchemy Productions, mm -hmm. which is also a big, like, indie yeah. player. And... David O. Russell worked with the Directors Guild of America to get his name removed from the movie. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, and you can't you can't be Alan Smithy anymore because of that shitty movie. And so so what movie? Burn Hollywood Burn, an Alan Smithy movie. Remember? No. We watched this. It's the one with Ryan O'Neill, and it's like oh, a fake documentary. Oh man, yeah, yeah I, I barely remember yeah, it. Just that's why so bad. That's why instead of Alan Smithy, he's Stephen Green. <laughs> Man, yeah. So is Stephen Green the new Alan Smithy? No, it's just like a new... You just get to pick whatever name now? You yeah, you basically have to like... I don't know if... I don't know the rules We should of explain it, that. There's... The Alan Smithy thing is like if you were a director and you made a movie but you didn't want your, your reputation tied to the movie, you could just put that it, the movie was directed by Alan Smithy. Well, it's, it's the name that would replace you if you officially took your name off. Yeah. And so, like, leading up to, like, basically, I don't know when they started, but at least up until the mid-90s, this was uh, a thing that happened. I'm trying to think. There's a, there's a Dennis Hopper movie that's an Alan Smithy movie. I will always think of the dog shit movie Shrimp on the Barbie as <laughs> the Alan Smithy movie that I sat through. But... Uh, we... Man, I wish Bonfire of the Vanities was an Alan Smithy movie. But that's the thing. Bonfire of the Vanities is way better than Burn Hollywood Burn. <laughs> yeah. uh, a movie that is, uh... <laughs> almost not... It's not really worth getting into. It's, it's too much... It's like... It's like if a... You, okay. You were in high school, listener, presumably. Uh, do you remember how... <laughs> Unless you're in high school right now. Which, yeah, hello, yeah, listeners! Well... Okay, you know how sometimes in high school you have to do projects on books or whatever, and some most people will like write a paper or just do something that's like boring but normal, but some people try to make like a video about it. And sometimes people will try really hard, but other times the video is people just like fucking around in their basement at their mom's house in like a dark room with like uh, bad costumes and they're clearly just improving for the camera. That's what Burn Hollywood Burn is, but it's made with Hollywood people and money. Like, it's just like Man. watching millions of dollars be wasted on the biggest jerk-off thing for nobody. Ugh. But hey, that's why we can't use Alan Smithy anymore. That's why Stephen Green is on the scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. Stephen Green is on the scene. Yep. He even added a copyright. He even <laughs> <laughs> trademark that shit. Yep. Put it on a t-shirt. 
He even added an E at the end to make it fancy. Yeah, ooh. Green so, with an E. So people wouldn't think it was fake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Stephen Green sounds like a real name. All right, should we get into the plot a little bit? Because to, to actually talk about what the movie is trying to be about, we kind of have to talk about yeah. the plot. Well, and that's the other thing, too. Okay, so reminder, listener, in 2008, when this movie was being filmed, there was no Obamacare. There was no health care for all. And so the the point that this movie is actually trying to make is about how the gov- how hard it is for the government to make universal health healthcare a thing. Yeah. And the fact that that's the point it's trying to make, and this movie actually finally got released in 2015. <laughs> Uh, the point's kind of moot. Like, there's no... Well, and I was... And that's why this movie, it's not... If you look this movie up anywhere, this movie is not marketed as a political satire movie. It's, it's marketed as a romantic comedy. Ooh, accidental love with Jessica Biel and Jake Gyllenhaal. Well, but that's, that's kind of why I wanted to get into this, is the healthcare stuff in this movie is both... It is it's well okay it's dated but in a very weird way like because when it would have come out in 2008 presumably there's this whole idea of like well it's a screwball comedy about like a real thing and it's like a playful way of addressing that it's like hey wouldn't it be great if we all had healthcare and maybe we just all uh, team up together and get it like sure but at the same time in 2007 2008 I guess I can imagine that. Like, America being a country where, as, like... Stupid... In 2008, can you imagine Donald Trump being president? <laughs> no, but I, like, even with George W. Bush's America, because it had that all, like, G-shucks, good old boy sort of sensibility, I'm you can imagine... shoots people. You can imagine, like, I, it's not realistic, but this movie where people are, like, like, it's really tough to get things through and people are corrupt, but the good of the common man can happen. And now, watching it, like, 2015, you're like, there is no good of the cop. <laughs> like, I, so it's like, it's like, somehow, somehow the way it's gotten dated is not in the, like, the core idea, because I think watching this movie with the whole healthcare thing, it's like, we still don't have universal healthcare. Yeah. Obamacare is way better than what we had in 2008, but it's still like the idea of, when I think of universal healthcare, I think of countries that have uh, universal healthcare. You mean and, like France? Or Canada? And Canada? Or all those places where if you get sick, someone's like, oh, I care about you. And I want oh, you to not die. Go to the hospital. We'll <laughs> uh, pay for it. Like one of those things. <laughs> so like watching this movie, it's like that part of it is like mo- still relevant, but the part that is not is like very dated is the idea of like what the, the guy in the government who says um, <laughs> even the most partisan battles deserve fairness. <laughs> like the guy <laughs> in Congress who says that shit. Like, that's the part that's like... This too optimistic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like... And that's getting to my big point that I'm kind of hinted at is this movie to me is like trying to hit... Just like Flirting with Disaster is clearly trying to hit like 1940s era screwball. It's like okay. that sort of thing. Like, I thought of... I, and I'm not saying this movie is anywhere close to as good as this. But 
it made me think a lot of His Girl Friday in terms of how, like, you just, like, constantly are just, like, whipping dialogue at you. At the movie's best, there's, like, that overlapping sense of, like, one line cuts off the next. We talked about this a lot during the movie about how you're like, holy shit, it's been a day since that (laughs) guy died? Like, things move really fast in this movie, and it's not, like... Well, and there's, there's so many players. But it's not like the movie's burning through things. It's that screwball pacing of... We're not actually, this isn't the real world. We're not trying to soak in the emotion. We're, we're playing off, like, these ideas and these characters, and they're all archetypes, and it's about the speed. And, like, it's, a, again, the naked gun principle of, like, try a lot of jokes, and of hopefully something will stick. And this is not, like, naked gun in the extent, to the extent that most of the jokes don't work or are not clearly jokes, but enough <laughs> jokes work for me, that it's that screwball style still stands up. And like I said before, the fact that she works, that Alice, our main character, works as like a roller skating waitress in a diner fits in with like a 1940s screwball comedy. Yeah. And the idea of like a, a common man going to the government and giving a speech to the government. It's very, mis- it's very Mr. Uh, Mr. Smith, Smith goes to Washington. Well, and, and the Mr. Smith thing, I don't know if you remember, the guy who says even the most partisan battles deserve fairness has a ridiculous Jimmy Stewart accent. Yeah, he does. And the other line he says is, Madam Speaker, you must call for a vote. And he like, like they, <laughs> they show him, he doesn't look anything like Jimmy Stewart, but he sounds so much like Jimmy Stewart and it's like they had to have put him in there to be like oh, yeah so it's, definitely. it's not kind of movie but it's that's what I'm saying it's like <laughs> the way- Jimmy Stewart accent <laughs> is really it's good. not that good but oh but, Paolo I think it's pretty good <laughs> it's, it's, it's gonna fall apart the more I try <laughs> but my point is that like again we're talking about this idea of the context of the movie and it seems to me like it's a much sillier version like flirting with disaster is is David O. Russell, is like pure strain David O. Russell's version of that. And so it's way darker. It has the darkness of spanking the monkey, which is something we'll save for when we cover that <laughs> in its own episode. But it's it's still that like fast-paced, like clever clashing of characters and ideas and everything. And just with uh, this movie, with uh, Accidental Love, he has less, less of his voices in the screenplay. And so it's not up to the same level of wit that you'd see in something like Flirting with Disaster, or especially I Heart Huckabees. It's well, like I, I wonder how much of his wit got cut out. Well, I, That's what I mean, where yeah. it's like, I feel like I saw a couple times where there was like a glimmer of I Heart Huckabees. And yeah. actually, I even wrote at the top of my notes, I wrote I uh, Huckabees Redux, because it's an ensemble cast. There are a lot of people who are similar to characters in I Heart Huckabees. Like, like I wrote down Kirstie Alley is, well, I don't know if this holds up, but I was she kind of is like the Lily Tomlin. Um, Bill Hader is Richard Jenkins. Um, I, I don't know. This I, I feel like... Shakira is Shania Twain. Yeah, okay, that's a fair parallel. That is definitely a good parallel. I think otherwise, it's... I could not figure out if James Marsden or Jake Gyllenhaal was Jude Law, because they both have... I think it's Jake Gyllenhaal, because he even has that moment where he's like, I don't know who I am. Crying feels so good. This is 
too. I mean, it's too loose and sprawling of a movie to really parallel with Iron Huckabee. I know because Iron Huckabee is so tightly. Written. I know it's and, and that's the for thing. me. It's yeah. like a it's a perfect movie, and that's why I say the TV thing because the way in which characters are introduced and then disappear throughout this movie, like. Bill Hader's doctor. Or Kirstie Alley. Or Kirstie Alley. God, Kirstie Alley's useless. Uh, is, like, very typical of television. Yeah. Of, like, where, like, I you think of 30 Rock, where, like, they'll do a bit where they're like, oh, we need to ask somebody directions. All right, let's have a guy who, a, a, a comedic actor who you've never seen before play, like, construction worker. And he's just, like, in a generic construction worker outfit. He has, like, three lines, and then the rest of the episode continues. You never see that guy again, but they're like, yeah, let's give him some jokes while he's there. Yeah. That, this movie has that sort of screenplay. Or the Hannibal Burroughs character. Yeah, just the, <laughs> the, 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 the side the tin, jokes, yeah. The hats, yeah. Well, and, um... Oh, that's what it was. I, I thought James Marston was kind of like Marky Mark with all the statistics. Yeah. But... But That's, again, it's like a very loose comparison. It's just the the he. I think David O. Russell has a strength with ensemble casts, and I also think that he has a strength with silliness and absurdity. Yeah. And that is my main complaint with his later movies. Is he does he is totally backed off of that. Yeah, it's almost like this movie. The experience of this mate meant. He was just like, I'm was done like, being silly the yeah, rest of my life. Yeah, I'm done with it. Yeah. And now he's doing biopics like Joy and and Silver Linings Playbook is still cute, but it's just not as like compelling, for at least for me. I do want to say really quickly, since you brought up Joy, this movie, a lot of my problems with it are aesthetics. Like cinematography. I think this movie looks pretty ugly yeah. for most of it. it I think this movie it is... rocks back and forth a lot. That's That, I think, is intentional, but it's hard to explain. He's doing something weird with, like, canted angles where the camera is, like, to kind of convey this chaos. He just films whole scenes diagonally, but the camera pans left to right while still in a diagonal. It just... I think it, like, it's clearly trying something. It's just... It's... It's not as planned out and more just casual. Yeah. But when this movie aesthetically works, like when it really comes together to look like a movie, it looks like joy to mm. me. It has that same sort of feel. And joy was also, is the other David O. Russell movie that's considered very sloppy and like oh, a really? mess of tones and things like that. And to I me... Guess tonally, yeah. But yeah. I mean, I, I, that movie's pretty tight, like... Uh, it, it's... Plot-wise, it Yeah, plot-wise. It's just... It, I, I mean, I really liked... I like Joy... Like I said, I like it more than I liked, uh, American Hustle, and I probably liked it more than The Fighter, too, but it mm -hmm. is... It is... It has sloppiness to it, but there's... I, I'm just saying, like, specifically in a way that's really hard to quantify or explain in a podcast, it looked like that. There is still that, like... Like, the moments where the movie does work, and we, again, we can't tell because of how much was edited, we don't know the process of, like, production after David O. Russell left, but you see these moments, like, moments like I Heard Huckabee's, or moments like Joy, and Joy and I Heard Huckabee's are so different in yeah. so many ways. The only ways they're similar is the great use of ensemble casts and acting and, like, these clashing, like, personalities, but there is something way sillier about this, and there is something way there's there's way less care put into the visual style behind it. yeah uh you saying that i found this quote from david o russell that i thought explained a lot of how he approaches movies 
And he, he said, people go to the movies because they want a full experience. If you're not going to give it to them with guns and bombs, you've got to give it to them with the human opera. And I would say that most of his movies are human operas. You know, like yeah. I said, he has the ensemble cast, so he plays people off each other, and he usually does it very successfully. Yeah, like, if I, I'm not, I'm, I don't have a great vocabulary for musical terms, but say something like I Heard Huckabees, or, or actually with I Heard Huckabees and Flirting with Disaster, you have a, a main character who's the baseline that, like, is the... Continues. The, the, well, like, the, yeah, the thread that holds everything together, like Ben Stiller in Flirting with Disaster and Jason Schwartzman in Iron Huckabees. But you have these characters who are complementary, or you have characters who have little arias or solos throughout the piece. Like, I'd say, like, Richard Jenkins in Iron Huckabees is, like, a solo. Not a solo, but, like, I guess, like, an, an, an aria would be a better comparison where it's someone that just comes in and gives this, like, moment of, like, their own thing. Like, his... Richard Jenkins scene in I Heart Huckabees as that, like... It's so good. The gas-guzzling Christian is amazing, and it, it you don't need that scene at all, or that character at all for the movie to work. But it's just this great moment that is, like, deepening the human drama of the world by in- introducing another character with I, more problems. I think that's my favorite scene in I Heart Huckabees. It's a great scene. The, the what happens at a, uh, at a field at sunset. Everything. Nothing. Everything. Nothing. It's beautiful. <laughs> You're yes. the Hitler. Well, actually, now that we're, since we're talking about that, this this is another thing that really feels like this movie is kind of impersonal for David O. Russell, is that there are characters, there are secondary characters who are kind of like that, like we said, who, who follow the main line and have their little But they never moments. really get their due. Yeah, and that's Tracy Morgan and yeah, Kurt Yeah, for Fuller. sure, and like, Kurt Fuller, they, yeah. They, they pretty much, they get a few great jokes in. Well, and even Catherine Keener, to some extent, we yeah. haven't mentioned her at all, yeah. but she is, she ends up being the Speaker of the House. Because, <laughs> she's the villain, yeah. Yeah, she's the, she's the villain because she's against... I don't know if she's against universal health care, but she is for her military moon base. Also, this she's is one of those an things, astronaut. This is one of those things I was thinking, this might be more of a 2017 than 2015 thought, but I was like, man, when this movie was conceived, the Speaker of the House couldn't believably be a villain. Like, now it's like, well, watch it now. It's like, no, this is, like, they, uh, Speaker of the House, also the fact that they're like, you didn't read the healthcare bill? I was like, hmm, uh, someone in Congress not reading the details of a healthcare bill? Also, the Speaker of the House is evil and doesn't care about healthcare at all. And, like, all this weird stuff where it's, like, the ways in which, because this movie is political in such a, an indifferent way, it, like, ebbs and flows how relevant well, it I is. But I wonder <laughs> if the the indifferent politics are from David O. Russell or if they're from Kristen Gore. <laughs> There's no way that Kristen Gore wrote a movie that was, like, indifferent in its politics. <laughs> she, I believe, I don't know to what degree she's responsible for it, but I, I was always under the impression that she was involved with the Futurama segment where they uh, they talk about global warming and they drop they yeah. show like how they drop the giant ice cube and they yeah. to cool it down. I always thought she was involved with that, and so I imagine. Well, wasn't like, Al Gore on Futurama yeah. a couple times? Oh yeah, and that had to be her being yeah. like, "Yeah, I, I hey, did." <laughs> Yeah. Dad, you want to come I'll, into work today? I found out she, when Al Gore, <laughs> Al Gore had, I think he either hosted an episode of SNL or was like on, like and did uh. a bunch of sketches, but she 
came on as a writer for that episode. Oh, so that's I think, cool. I think it's one of those things where... Uh, She's written three novels. Like, actually, this movie is based on one of her novels. Yeah, her, nummy's, her novel Sammy's Hill, right? Yeah. But she I, also yeah. wrote Sammy's House and <laughs> Sweet Jiminy. Oh, well, I wanted to write. I want to bring this up since we're talking about Kristen Gore. Uh, Kristen Gore, I hadn't. I didn't realize this, but she was apparently an associate producer on Foxcatcher. Which, which is like cool, good for her, but I like could not figure out why because she doesn't have that many credits. She is an extra on Danger Five in one episode of Danger what? Five. She's an extra, and this this is one thing. Her only other like really big credit besides things that we've talked about is she is a producer and was one of the co-writers of a movie called War Story that came out in 2014 starring Katherine Keener. Wow. And I, like, I'd only, I, when I saw this, I saw this looking at her up today and I was like, I know Mike D'Angelo wrote about this. My favorite critic, Mike D'Angelo. And his write-up of this movie on Letterboxd was, quote, Oppressively dreary exercise in miserableism plays hide the salami with its inciting incident to exasperatingly pseudo-arty effect. Oh. Oh. <laughs> wow, very verbose. A hardcore slam. Yeah, damn. Yeah. Uh, hey, you know what? While you were thinking about that, I remembered another secondary character that doesn't get their due. What? The mom? No, Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, oh my god, I totally forgot. I was like, there's gotta be somebody. Paul Rubens is in this. And you know what? He gets more due in Buffy the Vampire Slayer than he does in this. Yeah. And he is, I mean, he's like, good, but his character, his character gets like one scene where it's like, hey, by the way, I'm actually like a secretly sympathetic character, and then has no scenes. Like, he's yeah. in, like, s- scenes not speaking or, like, gesturing, and you, in, like, the climax of the movie, he clearly plays a part in, like, the good thing that happens, but you don't actually see him do it, and you don't actually get more character moments with him. Mm-hmm. It's it's very weird. That's like, there's, I just remembered that her mom is... Uh, Beverly D'Angelo. Yeah. And she is more or less wasted in this yeah. movie. Like, just totally, like, Alice's dad is somebody who, I like saw his name in the end credits, I was like, I'm not going to remember that name for the episode, and I did not remember that name. <laughs> but, like, the parents are very useless. They're... In it, in a little bit in the beginning, and the casting of Beverly D'Angelo suggests that maybe there was more. Uh, I would have hoped she would have had a great scene like Jason Schwartzman's actual mom yeah. in I Heart Huckabee. But it's it's very throwaway. Like it's it's yeah. not really. She's not really. That's why I feel like this movie would have been successful if there just hadn't been all these like financial issues. Like, even with the whole James Caan thing, like, I think that David O. Russell could have moved past that and still persevered to make a great movie. Yeah, or I I, I won't say, I, th- I I don't think this really would have been a great movie, but I think it would have been really a great little piece of entertainment. Yeah. Like, something that comes out in, like, June that you go, and you don't have any plans that week, and you go Kinda and see like it. Kind of like the nice guys. Yeah, something like that, where it's like... It's at very best, it's like a really great piece of entertainment. I don't think yeah. this ever was going to be like the definitive comedy about the healthcare crisis. No, no. But, but it, it would, I, I, what I hoped it would have been would have been like really witty, fast, which it was fast, uh, very smart, which I think it could have been very smart. There were smart moments. Yeah, it did seem to be dumbed down in editing a certain yeah. degree. 
Like, there's, that was part of the problem with the pacing and, like, the way certain scenes played out was... Yeah. Like, I think of, like, when they first go to Washington, D.C., and they have the montage of stuff that was like, this doesn't seem like a David O. Russell sequence. This seems like garbage thrown in throw. here because they're well, like, they don't know how to transition. Well, and the two stars that were contractually obligated to do reshoots were Jessica Biel and Tracy Morgan. Man. So everybody else got out of it, but they were contractually obligated to do reshoots. Man. Which is so weird. I feel like Jake Gyllenhaal should have been added to that list. Yeah, I wonder what stuff Tracy Morgan would have even had to reshoot. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, they didn't get into the specifics in my research, but yeah, they were the two people that were contractually obligated. Okay, so we haven't talked about the plot at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm just going to quick summarize. Yeah, do it. Basically, Alice goes to Washington. She meets her representative, who's Jake Gyllenhaal. His name uh, is... Howard Birdwell? Birdwell, yeah. Howard Birdwell. She uh, gets hit in the head, and so her nail in her head triggers the sexual inhibitions part of her brain. So she has no sexual inhibitions, and she has sex with Jake Gyllenhaal. And he's like... Hey, maybe I will help you with your healthcare problem. But what she doesn't know is that he's actually using her to push forward a bill that Katherine Keener wants because Katherine Keener's an astronaut and she wants to build a military base on the moon. God, yeah. They get, they get so much mileage like, on the moon base. Like, that that in itself, just saying that out loud, is so absurd. They and, could have really played that well, up. Well, that's another thing that's a TV thing. I kept thinking, like, the moon base, obviously it made me think of... Astronaut I, Mike Dexter? No, it made me think of Newt Gingrich <laughs> and his moon base. Oh, yeah. But it was also just like, I was like, this is something that would be in Parks and Rec. Like, yeah. this is exactly a bit, like... Like a Paul Rudd character doing the... Oh, like, think about, like, um, like, Zorp. Like, the whole thing, oh, like, yeah. the cult of Zorp. Where, like, an episode of Parks and Rec could be entirely normal, and then there's, like, yeah, we believe in the cult of Zorp, and it's our last night on Earth. It's, like, it feels like that, where it's, like, super crazy every time they say moon base. Like, yeah, military I, moon Military base. moon base. Like, at one point, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal says to... Uh, he says to Alice, have you ever been to a military moon base meeting before? Like, it's like, it, it gets, it gets thrown into so many sentences, but it's just like, I don't know, it's, it, it seems, it's another example of the way in which tonally, it feels like, like, I, I like Kristen Gore's writing on Futurama, but it seems like this is her first experience writing a movie and she leaned on the TV writing. We've talked about this before in other, I can't think of like another specific example, but this is a thing you see with like, say, uh, movies directed by Paul Feig, where the person who writes them, <laughs> oh, the first screenplay, it's their first screenplay really? after writing just nothing but television. Yeah. And this is way better than that, but it still is kind of ankled a little bit yeah. by it. Yeah, so she goes to this military moon base uh, press conference. Yep. And she talks on TV, and they're like, hey, we like that girl. Bring her to meet the Speaker of the House. And James Brolin, as we mentioned, Speaker of the House. So she goes there with a Girl Scout who in the movie is called a Girl Squaw. Yeah. I wonder if they just couldn't get the rights to it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure Girl Scouts has like the market on that. They don't yeah. even fuck with that shit. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> okay, let's not even try to compete with the Girl Scouts or get their permission. We'll just make up another Girl Scouts. Uh, Girl Squaw. Okay, that sounds good. 
But so they have these girl squads there. They made these cookies that are specifically for the moon base. The speaker eats one and then chokes on it and then dies. But he dies because the defibrillator that they were using, Catherine Keener purposefully unplugs it and tries to resuscitate him and, you know, it doesn't work because yeah. it's unplugged. So he dies. She, she And she becomes Speaker of the House because yeah. of this. Uh, cut to Jake Gyllenhaal and Al, or sorry, Howard and Alice fall in love and something else. Oh, they go to the funeral. Alice basically finds a way to commandeer the funeral. Which I gotta say, cause I wrote this down, but during this healthcare related funeral scene, I couldn't help but think of I, Daniel Blake, <laughs> because I was oh, like, geez. this is one of the weird things where I was like. This, because of how healthcare is, like, continually relevant, it reminded me so much of, like, the silliest, dumbest possible version of Ideal Blake in yeah. a lot of ways. But sorry, continue. Well, so, she commandeers the funeral and basically says, like, the Speaker of the House told me before he died that he wanted universal healthcare for all. And so, she, she starts getting this platform that's growing... Catherine Keener uh, betrays Alice and the Girl Squaws, who, the Girl Squaws make a hilarious viral video. Yeah, where it's like, <laughs> it's like a video where the Girl Scouts are showing, like, what, it's, it's the title's something like, what happens if you have a crappy HMO, but the letters are, like, alternate, like, capital and non-capital and happens, ends with a Z and stuff like that, but it's like a video where... Where they're like carrying another girl squaw into a bedroom. And she's got a nail in her head. She's got a nail in her head. I guess we'll just have to operate ourselves. We can't afford health care. And then the girls like they cut into the girl squad. She's like spraying blood, and all the girls are screaming. And then one of the one of the girls turns the camera covered in blood and says, "But at least we have a moon base." And they start like <laughs> dancing covered in blood. <laughs> they do like 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 little like the girls the dance you see like twelve year old girls doing it like a slumber party. Yeah. It's like that. Oh, it's like, I, but they're covered in blood. I definitely <laughs> did those dance, those choreographed dances yeah. with my girlfriends in elementary school, but it was to Spice Girls. But they they make that video, and very quickly, Catherine Keener's side makes like an attack video about child lesbians. A child lesbians, because like two of the girls, <laughs> two of the girl squads are holding hands in the video, and so there's like this video where it's like them, the word lesbians flashes on screen, <laughs> socialist medicine flashes yeah. on screen, and. and at the end, the announcer says, stop the gay poison. <laughs> and so, then also really quickly, I just want to add that right after that, there's a segment where like news reporters are hounding the girls and one of the, one of the news reporters yells at one of the girls, tell us about the tragedy of your gayness. <laughs> Which I thought was a really great line. <laughs> to ask a child. So like, just, it's like, again, it's like, this is the tone people should be seeing this movie yeah. in. <laughs> so Alice is like relying on Howard to help her get the bill through, but he has disappeared and she has no idea where he is. So Catherine Keener, to in order to get Alice to back down, she sends in James Marsden to fuck up the plans. James Marsden ends up outing himself as a rat uh, to Alice. And so she, uh, she asks him, hey, go find Howard for me. We need him so that he can sponsor my bill. So, he goes to find Howard, and Howard is, what do they call it? 
I missed I missed writing. It's down, at like but... a shaman brotherhood workshop or something like that. It's some kind of like outdoor brotherhood workshop. They're like all like Jake Gyllenhaal is shirtless and covered oh, in dirt. Oh yeah, he he's is. Looking he's looking real like, good. They're oh like, my god! It's like some some sort of like tribal ceremony, but they go out of their way to be like, yeah, it's like a man's retreat. Like they try to not like attach it to any sort of like religion thing. It's more yeah. like, like, like though they do say like, there's a fire test and well, uh, James Marsden shows up in the middle of one of Jake Gyllenhaal's like tests that he has to pass. Yeah. And, uh, I, I want to say he helps him through it, but the scene really makes no sense. And it like goes yeah. on for way too long and it's too weird it's like the moon base is weird but kooky in a way that fits with the screwball thing the this only, is like way this the is like only a reference, brothers type sequence right the only reference to the the brotherhood thing is when jake gyllenhaal earlier says he just wanted to be a forest ranger yeah and he's like i love being outdoors no he's what does he say he said man i love the woods and the woods loved me <laughs> yeah yeah so, anyway, he gets Jake Gyllenhaal, they go back to the girl, girl squad camp, and Howard professes his love and pronounces that he's going to help Alice get the bill through. Woo-woo! Then, they go to Congress, he tries, and then it's basically outed that uh, Howard is a slut. He <laughs> slept with three two or three female lobbyists to get bills that he wanted through the house were yeah and they were all like really horrible bills yeah like one of the bills was dynamite fishing <laughs> something like that and he was like it was dynamite fishing in toxic lakes and it's like yeah but it doesn't matter it's dynamite fishing well his, and, he's and saying, then the like, other one was he's saying this is a little bit of political satire here because he's saying like i had to vote on it to get i was he was trying to get money for like he keeps saying, like, he's trying to get money for, like, glue sticks and colored pencils yeah. for his district. And to, like, do... He's still, like... Even at the start of the... Like, when we first meet him, he's still trying to get this done. And when he's... there, All these lobbyists are coming out. It's like, I, I had to sign my name on the dynamite fishing bill so I could get the glue sticks and the colored pencils. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, his credit's been a little bit diminished. And so Alice, again, has to give a speech. She gives so many speeches in this movie. And also, I mentioned Coen Brothers really quickly, and I do want to mention, during this whole scene, at some point, Catherine Keener is the Speaker of the House, but she's like, she has a gavel. She's functioning like a judge. And she does say, it's highly irregular, but I'm going to allow it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, well, just one of those lines. Like, I think, I, I think of it from... It's something, if it's not the exact line, but it said something like that in, um, oh, Intolerable Cruelty. But it's, like, also one of those lines that comes up. It's, like, it, oh, it's highly irregular. Intolerable, intolerable. I can't yeah. say intolerable. It's a screwball. And, 1940s style and screwball. And I yeah. do love that screwball genre. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Coen Brothers are obviously because the it, best Because, honestly, I mean, I know it's, uh, screwball is, is usually hyped up absurd, absurdity, but that's so much more closer to real life. Real life is absurd. 
Well, and Screwball also, if played really well, like in His Girl Friday, or especially in Bringing Up Baby, there's that level of stress that comes into play that doesn't happen. Just anxiety of like, oh, everything's going so fast, and life is crazy, and what's going to happen next? Well, the idea of like, every character is like, telling just jokes and and, and stuff, and so you're laughing at that, but then there's one character who's like, oh, My pain! Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh... Anyway, they get their, they don't get their bill passed. The house votes it down. So she ends up, like, what, fainting or something? Yeah. And she gets taken out of the house. She and Jake thinks- Gyllenhaal, basically, he does an announcement to the house and he betrays her. And he, like, fully supports the moon base instead of the healthcare bill. But then it's revealed later when he is doing a press conference outside of her motel that he snuck in an amendment on the mo- the military moon base about healthcare. But it's like a specific provision that covers Alice's nail, Tracy Morgan's prolapsed anus, yep. uh, Kurt Fuller's uh, he's got like erection. A, yeah, he's got like perma he erection. He has a priapism. Uh, That's a thing? Yeah. Oh my it's God. It's not permanent, but priapism is like any like unwanted erection that like is unflagging. Oh my god. Every once in a while you'll hear like a guy's dick will just like more or less fall off because (gasps) it's just like blood just staying in there and just like it's the penis is very sensitive. Oh my god, no way. It's not good. Um, (laughs) But so it's like the the point is that the bill is is not actually solving the healthcare problem, but it is taking care of like all the characters that fell under Alice's umbrella in this. So like the Girl Scout, the Girl Squaws, sorry, don't know, copyright issue. And, um, this is where the whole thing comes up where they're like, Madam Speaker, you didn't read the bill? Like, yeah. like She's again, like, I skimmed it. Like, and also, this movie came out after, after Fahrenheit 9-11, which also has that really, that scene where, I think it's John Conyers, where he's like, sit down, my son. We don't read most of the bills <laughs> that come across our desk or whatever. So it's like, it's like one of those things that's really dated, but also really relevant. Like, again, that's what I'm saying. This movie is so weird in that way that yeah. it's like really apolitical, but then when it is political, it's either really dated or really relevant in a weird yeah. way. Yeah, it's almost it almost exists in its own time because it you know it had all these like delays and issues and it's not even really ever I know that she says that she's like the ho- the head whip but at the same time they never say Republican or Democrat they never go out of their way to say like red or blue yeah or anything like that and so yeah it's it's very oddly relevant at times but okay. So, they get their little amendment that approves their health care for only them. Jake Gyllenhaal and, or, I'm sorry, Howard and Alice. I keep wanting, I just want to refer to him as Jake Gyllenhaal because he is Jake Gyllenhaal. You love him, yeah. I, I love him. Unabashedly. He is so wonderful. Yeah. And you get to see him ripped in yeah. this movie. He is ripped. He looks really good. His hair's a little bit too long for me. I wish it was a little shorter. Or at least, like, must a little bit. <laughs> yeah, his hair's not great in this. No. It's very, like, it's very congressional. Yeah. It's, like, congressional mixed with, like, boyish. Like, they're really yeah. trying to not make him look like a man. Yeah, that's true. He's a pussy in this yeah. movie. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so they fall in love. And then the movie ends with credits 
of Tracy Morgan marrying the security guard from the White House that he falls in love with, which I can't remember her name, but her oh, nickname Rikisha. is... Yeah, Rakisha, but her nickname is Ray Ray. Oh, it's Ra-Ra. Ra-Ra. I can't remember. Yeah. Because his is KK. And yeah. Because he's Keyshawn, yeah. Yeah. Kiki, or KK and Ra-Ra, which I thought was great. Which, again, another moment for jokes, and they did nothing with it. <laughs> but, okay, so then the movie goes to credits, and then there's a fucking blooper reel. So that's when you know that the movie really was struggling. Uh, how long was this movie? I don't know. It's it seems not like, like an hour and a half. Yeah, it's like a normal length. It's not too short. I feel like if it was a David O. Russell movie, it would have been a little longer. Yeah, it would have been closer to two hours. Yeah, yeah, that seems yeah. right. But that's the whole movie, folks. Yeah, that's the plot. We just summarized it for you, so you don't have to watch it. But if you're interested in David O. Russell, this is a fascinating experiment because it's such a train wreck and. There's so many things we didn't even touch on. Like, the fact that uh, when they go to Washington, D.C., they go in a van, and they show the back of the van, and the van says, he who does not believe is condemned already. Which, what? What does that mean? And then, there's even the scene where they... Hey, you're, you're overthinking that one, I think. I, but, like, why did they include that? Because the... the like the Reverend Polar, just as a religion. I, I assume it's because he's like. But he goes like the full spectrum of religious belief, where he's like. Yeah, an well, atheist. he like renounces God. He goes, <laughs> the healthcare bill not passing. Yeah, he's like, this is really a sign for me that God. I know when he said that, I was like, well, that is like a dark fucking line for this <laughs> <Yeah>. movie. <laughs> and then there's the joke where uh, Alice's mom. They, like, ask her how she's doing. They're like, maybe she needs to go outside. And they're like, oh, no, Alice can't go outside. And they show this short clip of <laughs> Alice, like, knocking a <laughs> she's mailbox like, She's, like, walking to hip-hop. And she, after they, it's, like, really short. It's, like, way too short. It's yeah. maybe, like, a four-second clip of her, like, angrily strutting them, like, smashing a mailbox. And Tracy Morgan's character says, angry rap has helped me to cope with my messed-up medical situation, too. <laughs> Well, and then there's even all the stuff with Shakira, which we didn't touch yeah. on. There's... Catherine Keener's character promises Shakira to the girl squads, yeah. but it's a lie. Also, why does Tracy Morgan's character always read from note cards? Is that ever explained? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a... At one point in this movie, there is a literal record scratch. Yeah. In <laughs> where, where where what happens is... Uh, Alice is talking to Howard, and she says the word healthcare, and that is the word that goes to record scratch. I can't do a record scratch noise. I don't know. It's, yeah. There's a little... be bad. Terrible. We gotta work on our sound effects. How often do you, like, we don't need to, like, verbally make record scratches? It's already stupid when it happens when it's a real record scratch. Also, this movie had real a really big problem with pay, playing like very loud and inappropriate popular songs. Like the movie opens with Mr. Sandman. At one point, it plays at last when Jake They're Gyllenhaal sex, yeah. and Jessica Biel find, are having sex for the first time. They play um, uh, "I Wanna Put On." My, my, yeah, the my, boogie my, shoes boogie when they're shoes. drinking 40s in the hotel room. In the hotel room. room. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they also play at the end, they say, move on up. 
they play that song at yeah. the end. It's like they must have gotten a deal on like cheap pop hits. Yeah, it, it wasn't. It was clearly the the studio being like, eh, let's put some songs to like bring up the t- the mood, which is think. such a stark contrast from movies like. I Heart Huckabees, where there's an actual score. Or uh, Spanking the Monkey, which is entirely, almost entirely the band Morphine. <laughs> oh, oh my god, Morphine. Again, we cannot talk about that too much. Yeah, uh, sorry. Well, and I, I don't know how much... And I'm just, like, listing things that I wrote down that yeah. we didn't even get to touch on. I know, on. I really quickly, since this is the last major thing in my notes, I just want to... I wrote down a bunch of quotes from this movie, and I want to read just some of them. I'll give some quick context, but... I just want to go through, to give you an idea of some more of this movie, uh, relating to this being a 30 Rock episode, uh, someone says, she has no insurance, shut it down, at some point. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Jessica Biel says, maybe I can finally have an orgasm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then, apparently James Marsden's not good at sex. Yeah. Bill Hader has the line, did you just exchange her wedding ring for a chicken foot? <laughs> Uh, Beverly D'Angelo at one point uh, says the phrase, a weensy tad of depression. Oh, um, man. At one point, I forgot about that. J- James Marston, uh, when when Alice tells James Marston that she wants to go to Washington, D.C. to meet with Howard <laughs> Howard Birdwell, he says, like, he, he says, uh, basically, like, your, your, your screwed up brain is making you think stupid things. And he says, that's broken talking broken. <laughs> Um, that's almost like a, a Stuart Saves His Family uh, yeah, cliche. Yeah, it definitely sounds like that. Yeah. There's uh, that moment where Tracy Morgan hits on the black security guard. Like, uh, Alice goes to a security checkpoint and the, the, the sensor goes off. And they're like, ma'am, you have to step back through. And she's like, oh, no, it's just this. Pulls out a nail gun and, like, almost shoots the guard. Like, <laughs> that is a really good It's scene. really funny. But uh, Tracy Morgan starts hitting on the security guard. And, like, within, like, a minute or two, he's, like, going to go out to eat with her. And they're like, you're just going to leave us that fast? And he goes, in the black community, that's how quick it happens. <laughs> that line is really funny. Um, at one point, Jake Gyllenhaal says to Alice, you have very soft hand skin. <laughs> um, Je- Jessica Beale's character refers to herself as a dirty little nail slut and then says, the nail made me get slutty, damn it. Uh, what else? Yeah, there's uh, so many good, like, one-liners. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I have a few others, but you get the idea. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the core of my notes, is. But the one-liners are all, like, spread so far apart and surrounded by things that are like you're like what's going on that you almost don't even get to focus on how funny the one-liners are. And actually, I think a lot of times they're funny is because they catch you off guard. Like I laughed a lot at the joke of Tracy Morgan's character having to like hold his prolapsed <laughs> anus in because I always forgot about it. And then it'd be a moment like where he's dancing with Rakisha and it would, it would like she would be trying to reach around to like hold his waist and he'd be like backing away, holding <laughs> it. or like when they're walking up the steps. At the like the U.S. Capitol, and he has to like hold his relaxing assistance. <laughs> like it was, it was just like subtle and like they obviously it's not a subtle joke, but they didn't really draw as much attention to it as another movie would. And it's it's his him doing that wasn't as uh, noticeable as. Jessica Biel getting hit in the head every, like, yeah. ten minutes. like when the eagle, the giant bronze bald eagle hits her in the head. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what's your teachable moment? All right, we're jumping right in. Uh, well, what, 
you do your teachable moment first. You, All right. You got it ready. My teachable moment is very simple. It's that making movies is really hard. Uh, this movie, part of the reason that, that this movie is so great to watch is because you get to kind of see the behind the scenes of how even when everything seems like it's going to work out, it can really fall apart at the drop of a hat. Like, sometimes it's a miracle that movies get made. Yep. And this movie, it, it actually, I found out that this movie was written up in a book about the greatest movies you'll never see. <laughs> because for a long time, this movie was never going to be seen. I mean, it got released seven years after it was filmed. And so, I know that Paolo and I... Uh, sometimes can be a little harsh about movies or like very critical about certain things. But I just wanted to take a moment to recognize that making movies is not easy. So anyone who finishes a movie should be proud of themselves because it's not an easy feat. Yeah. It is a very hard thing to get done. There's so many different moving parts. Like like we talked about, this movie had great at like great actors they had a crew behind it there was a, a director they had good writers and just things like the the sound or the cinematographer or even the production company behind the movie fucked this up so you can have eight out of ten great major players but if you have two rotten apples that can like totally throw a project in the garbage and so I just want to take a moment to say that I fully acknowledge that making movies is not an easy thing. And, I, you know, congratulations to anyone who can get it done. <laughs> You've produced short films before, though, so you don't have I know, to be but, too apologetic. I know, but short film, like, like I, know, I just think about all just the like, work that we put not, into a short film. It's not like you're a haberdasher who's like, man, making a film is so easy. Like, they try making a hat. But, like, like but, <laughs> and we had great people working yeah. with us. I'm just saying, you're not... You're not a person in a glass house throwing stones. You like you at yeah, least have fair enough. some. You're you're criticizing from a point of familiarity. So at, at the same time, like I, what you said is true. I'm not taking it away, but I'm just saying, give yourself some credit. You are allowed to be a little harsh. I wasn't not giving myself right. some credit. All right, <laughs> but thanks, Paolo. You're welcome. What's your teachable moment? Well. My teachable moment, and I feel like we've always touched on this gray area on this podcast, but the the idea of the good bad movie is very is increasingly prevalent. It's uh, cool people love good bad movies. We talk about good bad movies all the time, but when you think of it, you're usually thinking of a movie that's so bad it's good. Like our beloved old dogs, or not old dogs, yeah, yeah. old dogs. I, I confuse it with the other one. <laughs> um, War dogs. <laughs> I want to say, it's not, cool dog? it's not Hell Dogs, and it's not Cool Dog. Oh, it's just Cool Dog and, and Old Dogs. Let's just, there. But, like, we're usually thinking of that, or, like, The Room, or... Uh, Fable Findings. Birdemic, Fable Findings, stuff like that. But there's... You also have to keep in mind the idea of, of good, bad movies that are good movies that are, to some broad structural degree, bad. Like, movies that... this I'm trying to think of another good example, but I referenced during the episode Frequency. And Frequency mm. is obviously a dumb movie that makes no sense, but... 
What? If you can, if you can deal with that, if you can watch a movie and not take it personally that a movie is imperfect. Well, actually, you know what's a perfect example? What? Alien Covenant. There we go. Yeah, that's a good, relevant new example. Alien Covenant is a movie that is very easy to look at and be like, here's the problem, here's the problem, they shouldn't have done this, they did this too much, so on and so forth. But if you're able to go into it and be okay, be at peace with it being not a perfect movie, you don't look at it and demand something that's not, you can actually get a lot out of the movie. Good, bad movies are usually the most interesting movies for me because you see people trying out things that don't work, but some things that do, and that sort of experimentation is what needs to happen so that people can make perfect movies or masterpieces. Yeah. I referenced Tarantino before. When you watch a Tarantino movie, most Tarantino movies are front to back incredible. We just rewatched Inglorious Bastards, and it's still amazing. Yeah. But those movies are, his movies are built almost moment to moment out of other movies. Out of good, bad movies yeah. or bad, bad movies. And so you Yeah, always... we talked about when we did student nurses, we talked about how, uh, you know, he's a bit, uh, Quentin Tarantino's a big fan of Stephanie Rothman, and Stephanie Rothman's movies aren't perfect, but she has a lot of great elements that he definitely borrows. Yeah, and so I guess that's my, what I'm building to is that if you watch Accidental Love, you should see it as what we kind of tried to give you the context for of like a screwball lighthearted comedy that is trying to touch with some issues that are a little bigger than it's prepared to, but it's at its core, a movie that's trying to entertain you. And this is like, I mean this, I don't mean to damn it with faint praise, but this is like a, the platonic ideal of a sick day movie. Like oh, this sure. is a movie that if you are immobilized, I don't know how you can watch this and be, annoyed by this there's this no is, gross there's nothing gross about it there's nothing like you Too, know there's nothing really offensive either you know when you see like there's i i i feel like in in a lot of movies there's like those really depressing scenes where the jokes are just so bad you're like oh like what did nobody even bother to write this this movie doesn't feel like that it feels like they tried to come up with jokes and they're either jokes that are just not really up to like film level or they're just not totally successful but they're trying stuff they're trying to be interesting and you can't just dismiss a movie because it's it's a mess you you have to be willing to engage with every movie or you're going to miss out on a lot of great stuff especially if you're trying to be a filmmaker you're trying to learn from films and, or you're just going to be a good film watcher you can't just See, like, I watched the movie and I was bored. Zero stars. Like, you can't be like that. You're, you're, that's a fucking useless. Opinion. I thought this movie was gonna be one thing, but it was another. Zero stars. Yeah. You gotta be ready for, uh, like, movies are supposed to be a roller coaster in the extent of, like, your, your emotions are on a roller coaster ride. But movies are also a roller coaster in that you genuinely aren't supposed to be prepared for every part of it and you have no choice but to go with the flow. And if you don't resent that, you can get a lot more out of every movie you watch. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my teachable moment. That's a good one. Yeah, and yours was a good one. Thanks, sweetie. Thank you, sweetie. <laughs> We're romantic here on Secret Cinema. You could say it's accidental love. No, it's intentional love. <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> oh. ooh, this has been the secret cinema. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Got a little weird at the end. Yeah, but why not? It's just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs>
Just the we two of us. We can make it weird if we try. <laughs> we bookended it. Yeah. With just the two of us. You and I. All right, this has been The Secret <laughs> Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Carone. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at CarrieSawThis and see more of her artwork at www.CarrieChafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com slash Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Lady Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks. Thanks for listening. That's good for business.